A year ago this week, the Times Union newsroom was forced to go virtual. Reporters, editors, digital producers, designers, all of us working remotely as the threat of COVID-19 in the capital region had become too big to ignore. It was a frightening, uncertain time. Schools shut down, businesses closed, state and local officials were urging people to stay home and to social distance, a public health term that was brand new to many of us. Yet here we are a year later. More than 1,000 Capital Region residents have died from the virus. More than 64,000 were infected. Vaccine distribution is rising, however, and though we are still virtual, our vital mission here at the Times Union to keep the community informed is stronger than ever. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the week's top headlines. Amid all the furor over the administration's uh, stonewalling of nursing home data, the state finally threw in the towel and offered up the documents. We'll learn more about a whistleblower's account of an alleged cover-up of safety concerns during construction of the Governor Mario M. Cuomo Bridge. Like Pac-Man, they start to eat away at the integrity of the bolts. And we'll hear some of the positive things that came out of the past year for Capital Region residents. People were doing things that they never thought they would know how to do. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, Take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. Okay, let's join Times Union editor Casey Seiler now for a look at what appeared this week in the Times Union and on timesunion.com. Welcome back, Casey, our Times Union editor. Uh, Let's just get right to it. Let's talk about some of the top headlines this week. All the stuff that's going on with Governor Andrew Cuomo. Do we, I mean, I'll ask you for updates on it, but do we have a name that we can call it now, a moniker? Can we call it Cuomo-gate, the Red Room Affair, something? Is that fair to say at this point? No, that's a very good point. I mean, because what we're talking about now is two, maybe three overlapping scandals that are engulfing Cuomo. There is, of course, the most serious one involving sexual harassment and or misconduct allegations that have been made against him by six women now, and the sixth woman, which we can deal with in detail, her allegations are the most serious to date. There is also, of course, the ongoing uh, controversy, now the subject of a federal investigation into his administration's handling of COVID-19 in nursing homes, and the apparent effort to cover up or tailor data in a report that was issued by the state health department in early July. And then a new edition, um, which we'll have um, more on later in this podcast, and that's the um, controversy surrounding uh, a potential structural flaw in uh, the Mario M. Cuomo Bridge, uh, otherwise known as the, the Tappan Zee Bridge Replacement Project, that came to light as the result of an eight-month investigation by our managing editor for investigations, Brendan Lyons. 
There's an increasing call for Cuomo's resignation at this point from many state lawmakers, and a lot of them are on, you know, his side of the aisle. What's going on there? And, you know, what specifically is it the sexual harassment allegations that they're calling for his resignation over? Is it the nursing home scandal? Is it all of the above? What's how can you sort of sum that up? As of Sunday, when state Senate uh, Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins called on Cuomo to resign, and Carl Hasty followed up with a statement that, while it didn't straight up say the governor ought ought to resign, it said that he should seriously consider it for the good of the state, things appeared to be status quo um, for about 48 hours. And then um, the aforementioned Brendan Lyons um, reported that a sixth woman, an aide in the governor's office, the executive chamber, had brought forth complaints that the governor had touched her inappropriately after she was called to the governor's mansion late last year on what appeared to be a pretextual task to help the governor uh, with a technical, technical problem with his cell phone. That was a bombshell because, of course, that crossed the line and went well over um, what the governor had said, that he never touched anybody inappropriately. This was a direct contravention of that. And then on Wednesday afternoon, Brendan reported in greater detail on the woman's claims, which basically she alleges that um, she was called over to the mansion, went up to the private residence on the second floor. The governor closed the door and then began groping her. Those are allegations that are very, very hard for lawmakers to turn away from. It is also very hard for lawmakers to continue to say, you know, I'm just going to wait for the independent investigation into these harassment claims, which is being overseen by Attorney General Letitia James's office. I'm going to wait for that investigation to run, and then I'm going to make up my mind when it all becomes public. Now, that investigation is probably going to take at least upwards of two months, even if it is moving quickly. It is very hard to imagine that it's going to come out any sooner than that. So um, lawmakers uh, are increasingly, including Democrats, are finding it very hard to stomach the idea of Andrew Cuomo remaining in office, um, wielding all the gears and levers of power while all of these scandals are hanging over him, especially the prospect of a governor who is an alleged sexual predator, which is not something I'm making up. That's what many lawmakers are saying. So that is why you are seeing centrist Democrats, like right here in the capital region, Patricia Fahey from Albany and John McDonald of Cohoes. These are not wild-eyed progressive members of the conference who have been Cuomo's opponents for you know years and years. These are people who have worked very well with the governor. But um, on Wednesday night, John McDonald and Thursday morning, Patricia Fahey came out and said that they now think that it would be for the good of the state if the governor set, stepped aside at least temporarily and let Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul take the reins. Wow, this all has kept our Capitol Bureau and our own Brendan Lyons extremely busy in the last couple of weeks. And uh, we are going to stay glued to their coverage going forward, certainly. These people do good work. 
Now, switching topics to another really big story uh, that came out of the region about uh, almost three years ago, well, two and a half years ago, the tragic Schoharie limo crash. We have uh, a development there that the Times Union has been working on for 30 months, 30, 30. Uh, so can you give us an update there? What happened this week? Yeah, Larry Rulison, who has really been on top of the ongoing twists and turns in the investigation of the tragic Scoharie limo crash from October of 2018, really ever since it happened. And one of the things that he has been pushing for is the release of the complete record of interactions between two state agencies, the Department of Transportation and the Department of Motor Vehicles and Prestige Limousine, which was the company that owned the vehicle, the stretch limousine that crashed in Schoharie, killing 20. Those agencies attempted to stonewall the release of those documents, which included uh, reports of inspections and and other documents uh, that preceded the accident. Uh, and basically, as the you know the uh, National Transportation Safety Board discovered in their report, which came out last fall, showed that there were numerous deficiencies in the way that the state regulated not only Prestige Limousine, but also lots of other uh, limousine companies, that there was no coordination in terms of enforcement of the rules covering covering these limousines, which are, are supposed to be considered and, and regulated like buses. And uh, the state continued to stonewall the release of these documents, first claiming that, well, we don't want to potentially interfere with the prosecution of Nauman Hussein, who was the operator of Prestige Limousine at the time of the accident. He has been charged with multiple felonies, including negligent homicide. Uh, as well as the NTSB investigation. That excuse fell by the wayside after the NTSB put out um, its own report, as mentioned back in the fall. There was, in addition, a FOIA request from the families of many of the victims of that crash that the state stonewalled even after a, a judge's ruling saying that the state had violated FOIL in denying them. The state decided to appeal. And then finally, Really, amid all the furor over the administration's uh, stonewalling of nursing home data, the state finally threw in the towel and offered up the documents. So uh, Larry Rillison got a hold of those documents late last week. Many of them had already been uh, released, including by the NTSB as part of their final report. But one new document that we got to look at was a police report from immediately after the catastrophe that concluded that catastrophic brake failure was the the central cause and that of course was uh was something that the NTSB concluded as well why in the world the state thought that that had to be withheld from public view is just beyond me well if you want to read more about that report and what Larry got out of it, uh, visit timesunion.com. Let's move on to the fact that one year ago this week is the anniversary of, I'm just going to call it the covid anniversary. Do you have any thoughts on that sort of looking back? Well, many thoughts, but I will share with you an anecdote. I, I actually went into the Times Union's newsroom, where I haven't been for uh, quite a long time. I had to print some documents out, went into my office, and in my office, there is a rack 
where the day's kind of competing newspapers are are placed. And the newspapers that um, that still remain there are from, I think, I want to say it's either March 12th or 13th, but it's almost exactly a year ago. And as I looked over them, I was struck by ha- they have the same feel you will see in a movie about an alien invasion where in the rubble you see, uh, you know, a discarded newspaper that says Mars attacks. Could this be it? All of the headlines from uh, especially the, the New York City newspapers are, you know, city t- city to shut down. Don't panic. COVID terror, you know, and it, it does kind of have that sort of Mars attacks feeling. And it, it did, it sent a bit of a shiver up my spine, but it's also a reminder that I think everybody was afraid a year ago that, uh, was this going to turn into some kind of truly terrifying apocalyptic situation? And here we are a year later, we have of course suffered terrible losses as a nation, as a planet, as a species period, but um, it's spring again, and we do all feel a sense of uh, a sense of renewal, and I hope a sense of hope. Truly, and later on in this podcast, we are going to talk about some of the kind of positive things that came out of the past year. One of which is this podcast that we are talking on. So, will be some something to look forward to there. The last thing I wanted to ask you about, Casey, uh, you mentioned it briefly earlier: the Governor Mario M. Cuomo Bridge. And uh, what is going on there with uh, a whistleblower and a potential cover-up? Yeah, Brendan has been working for eight months on a story that appeared in print on Sunday called Broken Bolts that looks at a five-year-old case of uh, an apparent alleged cover-up by employees of the consortium that constructed the Mario M. Cuomo Bridge specifically on the matter of bolts that were breaking during the construction. These bolts, as um, Brendan laid out, are very important in terms of lashing together the, the enormous girders that form you know, the structure of the bridge. Brendan's story, to uh, sum it up in a nutshell, raises serious questions about whether the state's response to uh, the discovery of that problem and the covering up of it, allegedly, whether or not the state's response was robust enough and uh, whether or not more needs to be done to make sure that the bridge is, as the Thruway Authority insists, perfectly safe for people to drive on now and into the future. All right. We are going to hear a snippet of a conversation that you had with Brendan Lyons on our sister podcast, Capital Confidential. So we'll we'll go right into that after this. But Casey, thank you for joining me and we will talk to you next week. Thanks, Jess. Brendan, if this story were a movie, could you describe for us what the opening scene would be, which is, of course, the one that you chose to open the story with? That was a scene that happened in January 2016. They were roughly at a halfway point, I think, at that time with assembling these massive girders that support this 3.1 mile structure. They were being assembled at the port of Queemans in southern Albany County. There was a staging area there, a massive operation to assemble the girders, load them finished onto barges, which would bring them down to the bridge site about 100 miles south. And Jimmy Jordan, who was one of the more experienced iron workers on that job, he was tightening a bolt and he 
was going through the torquing process that they do. And when the bolt snapped, it flew into the air because of the pressure that, that are put on these bolts from these torque wrenches, these electric torque wrenches, it flew into the air and he looked up, which iron workers usually know not to do. And it slammed him in the face and split his lip open and injured him. That scene led to the safety manager at the port taking information and investigating what happened and why did a bolt break. And during the course of that inquiry, he learned that bolts had been breaking for months, if not longer. And he began interviewing people, including engineers, foremen, and others, and discovered that they were not interested in having the quality assurance inspectors know about this situation. And that safety inspector, James McNall, consulted an attorney and apparently uh, began recording his conversations with some of these workers. Not long after that, he met with Ken Riley, who was an inspector, a quality assurance inspector for a company called Alta Vista that had been hired by the Thruway Authority to keep watch, along with others, the inspector general and others, of what was going on at these job sites to make sure that everything was done according to contract, according to regulations, according to the law. And Ken Riley, when he learned of the conversation that James McNall had with the engineer in charge, opined that it could be criminal and an investigation was launched. And that was five years ago, a little more than five years ago. We are talking about one of the biggest infrastructure projects in North America at the time that, that the Mario Cuomo Bridge was, was under construction. And I think even, even still to this day, it became quite literally a symbol of sort of Andrew Cuomo's New York. Uh, you know, the, the governor was turning it into a symbol of noticeable, big thinking progress getting made. What then did this investigation develop? When, in other words, did the state get involved and how did that process run? Well, the state inspector general's office began an investigation that year in early 2016. Uh, the Thruway Authority, which was the overseer of this job, the, you know, the agency, the authority that had contracted with Tappan Zee Constructors, who's a, it's really a consortium. It's, a, it's an LLC made up of four to five companies that came together to do this $3.9 billion project. An investigation was launched and as part of that work, as it went along, as it extended into 2017, Alta Vista, who is the, is the watchdog for the state and is a, a firm out of California that's been around, I think about six years, they also conducted their own tests on these bolts. They did some random sampling on a very small number of bolts and determined that it did not appear to be hydrogen embrittlement and that they thought that the bolts are safe, and that may be the case, but that resulted in some blowback from the whistleblower, James McNall and, and his team, when they looked into and hired their own experts as part of a key TAM case. Let me just stop you there. You use two terms that, that listeners might not be familiar with. The first is hydrogen embrittlement. And of course, the second one for the non-lawyers who are listening along might be a key TAM case. So hydrogen embrittlement 
is something that has been looked at deeply in these investigations and, and multiple experts have opined on whether those bolts that were manufactured in Pennsylvania and shipped to this job site could have had some sort of defect. And that those defects might be microscopic fissures in the bolts themselves. And that can be a result of how they were sealed, possibly not sealed the right way. Sometimes these bolts have coatings on them in the same way brake liners might have coatings on them to make them last. And so if you get these tiny cracks and fissures, hydrogen atoms can get into those cracks and they start like Pac-Man, they start to eat away at the integrity of the bolts. And that can take a short amount of time or it could take years. That is in question now because even one of the state's own experts that they hired opined that it could be and, and seemed to be a result of hydrogen embrittlement. Bear in mind that the iron workers we interviewed, none of them were that I spoke with had been interviewed by any investigators. And these are iron workers who worked on massive projects like the Global Foundries campus in, in Malta, where you know millions of bolts were put in. And they said in that job, there were no bolts breaking that they could recall. But in this job, there were hundreds, if not more of bolts breaking. And they would be gathered up when they hit the ground and put in a scrap pile. And according to the whistleblower's investigation, that was done by design to conceal them from the quality assurance inspectors. Those bolts uh, were then being replaced under cover of darkness sometimes by the engineers and foremen. And in one instance, they took a tugboat in the middle of the night out to a barge where a, a finished girder had bolts that had snapped and come, you know, were laying on the barge beneath the girder and they were replacing those bolts on President's Day in 2016 when there was no quality assurance inspectors around because the job was, was supposed to be on hold that day. You fast forward and in, I believe it was March 2017, roughly a year after the whistle was blown and there was a lawsuit filed under seal in Westchester County and State Supreme Court in which it was alleged that the company had been concealing from inspectors that bolts were breaking and, and replacing them secretly, which was in violation potentially of the law, but certainly of their contract that required them to disclose these sorts of things. It's a lawsuit filed under the False Claims Act, a complaint, and that remains under seal until the state of New York determines whether or not they will intervene in the case and in this case, they ultimately did intervene, but not until last December of 2020. And they reached a settlement with Tappan Zee constructors that remains under seal. Is there, is there a line that can be drawn to the governor or is that sort of through the inspector general's office, which is a kind of watchdog agency that like many other watchdog agencies in New York, the governor is seen as having an undue amount of control over. I think the more direct line drawn to the governor here goes from the throughway authority. They are the overseers of this project. They are the spokesperson for the state on this project. This is their project. These were their quality assurance inspectors. And I believe in this instance, you could, you could even make a case that they are the client for the attorney general's office in the, in the case. Um, I'm sure that any settlement would have been 
would have been discussed with the Thruway Authority, which conducted its own independent tests and, and enlisted its own uh, engineering firms to, to study these issues. The question that remains is, was the testing on a limited number of bolts in 2017, I believe, enough to assure, ensure the, the security and the stability of this bridge going forward? Some experts believe that that small sampling of bolts that had broken on the bridge and on the girders or while being installed could represent a problem that as many as 500,000 bolts could be suspect. And how it works is these girders are held together with a clamping force by these splices that each have about 500 bolts in them. And these are big bolts. And if one or two of those bolts break or even just weaken, then you get a little bit of a swaying effect in that splice. And that can be fatal to that connection. That's the concern. And there are instances around the world, you know, throughout modern history of buildings and bridges collapsing due to bolts that have hydrogen and brittle. You can hear more of this conversation on our sister podcast, Capital Confidential, at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. After the break, it wasn't all doom and gloom this past year. Christy Gustafson Barletti talks about some of the positive things that happened to our readers. Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of the Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in Ranieri's conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Well, life handed us all a big lemon last year. Jobs lost, businesses lost, lives lost. But as features reporter and blogger Christy Gustafson Barletti found, some Capital Region residents, against the odds, were able to make a little lemonade. So we've been talking a lot about the negatives of the pandemic, obviously, all the things that we can't do, all of the experiences that we missed, particularly our summer. But uh, according to our readers, positive things have come out of this last year of our lives when we've been social distancing and isolating and doing all of these things that we you know, have never really done before. So you kind of took a poll of our audience uh, and how they felt about the positives that came out of it. So tell me, what are some of the highlights? Yeah, well, I will say we got more than 100 responses. So it showed that a lot of people did have really great things to share about what happened to them the past year. But one of the positives was the birth of a baby, whether it was their own baby or grandchildren were born, that came up a lot. And obviously, you know, when you're locked down for 12 months, the new life is certainly something worth celebrating. Something else a lot of people brought up was that they paid off debt, right? You spent less money because maybe you didn't go on vacation or you weren't going out to eat as often or you weren't traveling. 
you know, to and from work and people were able to pay down their debt. So that's certainly a positive as well. That is a definite positive in my book. Oh, I know. Who doesn't want to pay down their debt? You know, a quality time with family, but also quality time with whether it was finding a new hobby or working on a current hobby, improving your sewing skills or improving, you know, home improvement, things like that. Reading books, a lot of people talked about how they finally really got to dive into to books that they had always wanted to read that maybe sat on the end table and never really got picked up as often as they would like. So that was a nice one. You talk a lot on your series, 20 Things Plus, uh, you know, to people who have picked up new hobbies during the pandemic, like Jody Kenny was doing the, the sewing. She learned how to sew and other people, you know, picked up fitness habits. And, you know, it's really interesting to see the breadth of things that people have been doing. People were doing things that they never thought they would know how to do. Big things like refinishing furniture, redoing rooms, remodels. And I'm not talking about, let's just put up some new window treatments and bring in a new sofa like full on things that required construction and hammer and nails and maybe even power tools. And I think a lot of people realized that, wow, I have more in me than I really thought I, I did. So just when I'm given the time, why not give it a try? I think people turn to YouTube and we're just able to learn and learn and learn. And all of a sudden they went from not knowing how to do something to maybe becoming experts or making a business from it. You know, one woman learned how to knit and crochet and then started selling her goods on, on Etsy and on Facebook Marketplace. Oh, that's so cool. So that targets two things. I guess you could pay down your debt that way too and learn a new hobby and keep busy. Um, people talked about having, uh, creating and starting new family traditions. They weren't necessarily able to be near their family, but maybe they started new traditions or they did things outdoors. They took up a hobby that they could do with their family outdoors, be a hiking or skiing or ice skating or anything that they could have done that was a little bit safer than maybe gathering in someone's living room. Sure. Now tell me, do you have one thing that you can point to in your life that was a positive that came out of the pandemic? I very much struggled with remote learning last year. So I think I'd always had an appreciation for teachers. I always knew what they did was pretty remarkable, but I think I learned to appreciate a lot of people who I maybe not took for granted previously, but didn't realize how, how really wonderful they are. And that's teachers, yes, but it's also people who you think went to work every day and prepared our food or checked us out at the grocery store. So I think I gained an appreciation for people or jobs that I maybe kind of didn't think as much about previously. I just thought, oh, well, yeah, you're there, you know, checking out and I pay for my bananas at ShopRite. And then it, it was more than that. And just seeing the dedication that people had and kind of having a better understanding of how dedicated a lot of people were. Yeah, that's a powerful sentiment that, you know, is going to carry through after this pandemic ends when we're all, you know, back to some semblance of normal life for sure, right? Yeah, I think you learn to have a greater appreciation. You, know, you see some people working, whether it's in a store or a restaurant, they're wearing double masks and a shield, and you think, well, they're probably still a little scared and a little nervous, but they're going there and they're doing that every day. And they're doing it probably obviously for themselves and their family, because you need to pay the bills, but they're also doing that so that the rest of us can have the services that we not only need, but want. So I thought that was a nice kind of reflection. It, it really opened my eyes to things that I think I went about my daily life, not really acknowledging or recognizing what each person I interacted with necessarily did. Well, that's a super positive feeling. I love that. Were there any kind of extreme things that you, extreme responses that you got from folks on Facebook, things that made you go, whoa? Yeah, one reader thanked everybody at St. Peter's and the doctors because he survived sepsis. 
Wow. So you think, okay, well, I avoided COVID, but I had sepsis and, you know, sepsis is very dangerous. So a lot of people don't survive it. And to think that he did that, you know, some people got healthier. One man was told, Hey, look, you might have lung, you could have, get lung cancer. He quit smoking. Oh, wow. So I, that's not necessarily extreme, but I think it's an extreme change in life, right? Quitting smoking is not easy. You're quitting anything that's a habit is not easy. So yeah. to sit there and say, okay, now I'm going to have my moment. And especially at a time that's stressful and you have a lot more free time and you're not keeping busy. I think it would be natural to turn, to keep smoking or to turn to alcohol or things like that. But some people use this time to overcome addictions or overcome habits that they felt were unhealthy and also reflect on their own mortality and their own health and kind of look at, I think a lot of us looked at our health because we learned that comorbidities were certainly played a role with COVID. So you thought, okay, well, what are the things I can change? Certain things I can't change, right? I have diabetes or, or heart condition. I may not be able to change that, but maybe I can walk to lose weight or I can quit smoking or I can do something to kind of try to improve my health to maybe improve my chances of you know, being healthier if I got COVID. Wow, that's really inspiring and a very positive way to look at it. I love it. Are there any more that any more responses that you got that you want to highlight? Two of my favorites I do want to share with you. One was from Sam Rhodes. He said, my dad started ending our phone calls with, I love you, which I thought that was really significant, really powerful. And again, I think it goes back to, we sort of reflect and realize and start to really appreciate what we have. So Katie Salmon shared with us how she started working in a nursing home as a social worker. And she said her floor became a COVID floor and she found and met some of the strongest, most genuine caring people in both the residents and the staff. And she also said she just won't forget the residents because they altered the way that she sees life. Wow. And I think that speaks to the positivity for a lot of us this year is just how perspective was really changed and you, you learn to kind of see outside of yourself and, and see the bigger picture. Yeah, and that we're all in this together, right? We have to work together to get out of it. Exactly. And I feel like we're on our way. We're on our way out. So that's a positive too. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Albany Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom.